This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Before we dive in to this episode, I have to tell you what is up on Patreon because I have made so many changes. I put so much into it this summer and there's so much to be had over on Patreon. So first off, you can become a member for just $5 a month or we also have a pay what you can option at $1 a month because you know, stuff is crazy out there, you guys. I get it. And here's what you get when you sign up on Patreon. One bonus episode every month, an extra episode of a book that is only for Patreon subscribers. We have also started running ads on this podcast. I held out for a long time, but finally I caved. And now that we have ads, if you don't want ads anymore, all the episodes on Patreon will go to your podcast feed without ads if you just sign up for Patreon. So all episodes from here going forward, ad free. We also have access to something called a lounge. They gave us early exclusive access. It's been awesome. So basically become a member of the Patreon. We have a cookies only chat where all cookies can talk to each other. It's like a real digital book club where you can talk about books, the episodes. We talked about the Barbie movie, like so much conversation is going on there. That is where all my focus is going as well. That is where all the conversation is happening. You also get, oh my God, there's more. You also get an email of photos that go with the episode and you get emailed that every time an episode comes up. So everything we talked about in the episode, a photo of it will be sent to you as well as the reading list for the month if you want to read along. If you love this podcast, if you want to support this podcast, join the Patreon. It's so much fun. There's so much fun to be had over there. And also we are fully independent. We run fully by your Patreon support. So consider supporting us over there for just $5 a month um, and a pay what you can option at $1. And it's linked in the show notes. It is www.patreon.com slash Chelsea Devantes. If you just want to type it in, uh, it takes two seconds. We send you a podcast feed. You get all of the bonus ad-free stuff. So easy. And um, I'll see you over there in the lounge if you join the Patreon. Welcome to Glamorous Trash. Today we are book clubbing and recapping Crystal Hefner's memoir titled Only Say Good Things, Surviving Playboy and Finding Myself, published this January 2023. Oh my God, it is not 2023. It is 2024. And this book is hot off the presses. We were blessed to have early copies. So thank you to the publisher. And oh my God, this book. If you have not heard our Holly Madison episode where we covered her memoir, we will link it in the show notes. I do think it's going to be a companion piece to this memoir. This book is going to give Runaway Bride, a horrendous Dr. Phil cameo, a metaphorical and literal limp dick Hugh Hefner arc. And what I feel is the long time coming death knell to the Playboy brand. As Crystal wrote in her book, Hugh Hefner's America meant being the blondest and the skinniest. So let's dive in. When I was reading this memoir, I knew I needed an absolute expert on Playboy history and memoirs. And because this is our Valentine's Day episode, I also needed an expert in all things smutty and wonderful. So I have two guests joining me for our episode today. Both of them are cookies who I met online through our book club. So I'm very excited for this discussion. Please welcome the amazing Amy and Beth. 
Amy can be found in the mean streets of southeastern suburban English classrooms trying to get post-COVID students to read and write without using AI. Very noble, Amy. Hi, Amy. Thank you for coming on. Hi. And Beth is the creative voice behind at Smutty Book Reviews on Instagram, where she shares hilariously snarky reviews of romance novels. When she's not reading smut, Beth is a physician, a manager of her children's social lives, and the overlord of her local PTO. Please welcome Beth. Hi, Beth. Hello. How are you? You guys, I'm so, there's just so much to get into. And before we go into the full recap, I want to share with you guys my overall thoughts and feelings and thesis statements on this book. And then I want to hear each of your like overall takes. And then we're going to, we're just going to go page by page. (laughs) There's a lot. There's a lot. Here's my overall take on the book. In terms of the craft of memoir and the craft of a celebrity memoir, I would give this book like a nine out of 10. It's everything you want. It's an easy read. It's full of depth and specificity. It has a gorgeous message, well-crafted arc. And aside from mentioning her first boyfriend like a million times, I thought it was really well-written. And I really felt like the hand of her ghostwriter, who is Laura Love Harden, who's known as Mama Love, she has like an unreal memoir. I was like, oh, this is what happens when you get a really, really good co-author. And so I finished this book on a single day, uh, like in one day on a girl's trip in a hot tub, which is my happy place. (laughs) I thought it was a great read. Okay. However, I also feel like if you hardcore follow Playboy history or the girls next door, I think you'll find the book to be like missing some things, maybe like writing around things on purpose. I'm not like an expert, but I loved Holly Madison's memoir. I watched the girls next door. I'm a millennial, so Playboy Bunny belly button rings like are my cultural touchstone of everything wrong with me. So I'm like not expert on it, but even when I was reading this, I was like, some things feel missing or wrong. And so I kind of want to get into all of that. Okay, so that's my thesis. I loved it, but I was also like historically, like factually, I think it's missing some things. Amy, I want to start with you. What's your like overall take on the book? I thought it was very well written. I did enjoy reading it. But like you said, there are just not even just in the Playboy scope, but there are timeline issues with her early life. Mm. So there is something I would be reading and she would say something like that doesn't track with what was back there. And I double check it. So there was always a level of something feeling very inauthentic. And Beth, what was your like overall stance on the book? My overall take was that she's like spilled the tea. But then there were certain things that she would drop and then not really describe. And I wondered, had she ever seen Girls Next Door? I felt like she was a woman who just was constantly looking for a house. That was my take on this whole book. I was like, (laughs) she just wants a house. And, you know, aren't we all just looking for a house? (laughs) Yeah, I felt like the house was like the Camilla of like this entire book. It was like Crystal... Hef, and then the Playboy Mansion. It was like a little triangle of the three of them. Which is a really good take because the house becomes literally poisonous, which we're going to get into. I can't wait. So I want to begin and read a little bit of page four and five. I'm going to read some sentences from both of these pages. She said... I spent a decade of my life at the Playboy Mansion. First, I was just a guest, a dazzled, starry-eyed girl at a party. Then I became a girlfriend. I became a member of arguably the most high-profile, visible modern harem in existence. Then later, she says, and then I left and became his runaway bride, the only one he ever chased after. Interesting. And then eventually, I became his wife. Then later on the next page, I love that she said this. 
The only thing Hef knew is that he wanted to make sure I knew he wanted to be buried in the Westwood Village Memorial Park next to Marilyn Monroe. He had already bought the crypt for $75,000 back in the 90s. He said he didn't care about the funeral service. He would leave all those details to me. I won't be there was all he said. Do what you want. All he cared about was that he ended up in the slot he'd bought right next to Marilyn's. She was the first woman to grace the cover of Playboy and to appear nude inside its pages. He put her in there without her permission after buying the photos from a calendar company. She never got a dime and so Certainly, she didn't have a say in whose bones would be lying next to hers for all of eternity. So right there, I'm like, okay, we know her point of view, I think. And I'm so happy she's standing up for Marilyn Monroe, who literally has to be buried next to this fucker. Forever. 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 I took note of what you read, the only one he ever chased after. Whereas in Holly's book, her side is that when she was leaving, he was trying to get her to stay as well. I am a Holly loyalist. I will go ahead and put my bias on the table. Yes. But you can definitely see her ego and bias coming into the retelling of these events as well. It's like, was that her truth or is it a little bit of shade or is it a little bit of prestige? Like, I'm the only one this loser in a bathrobe chased after when he could have chased after so many. And like you said, Holly is also like he chased after me. And so, yeah, I read I read into that one, too, of maybe like the throne of the wife. She and, got the I mean, wife she does moment. still keep his last name. Yeah. And his last name's on the book. And you know what? I I kind of went back and forth on how I felt about it, but I ended up loving it. I was like, yeah, she had to marry him, <laughs> you know? So if you want to keep that name, you do you. Yeah. It's like a last name that says I've seen some shit. Yeah. She's worked um, hard for that name. Yeah. She, she put in the time. So then she starts at the beginning as how she met Hugh Hefner. And it is this story about, oh God, it's so painful. It's about how women would get into these parties at Hugh Hefner's mansion. And from the party, you would find all the ways you could grow into become a playmate, his girlfriend in the magazine covers. But first, you have to submit bikini photos online to like a weird Craigslist ad. I don't know where they advertise, but yeah, they just send pictures and be like, can I come to the party? Some dude would be like, yeah, you're hot enough to come or like, no, you're not hot enough to come to this stupid party. It was a Halloween one. So her friend, Allie, a new friend was like, let's send our photos in. They both get in. She and her friend, Allie, are like hanging out by some red velvet rope and Hugh Hefner catches Crystal's eyes and he mouths, you come here. And a bodyguard comes and grabs Crystal and she's like whisked away into this... I don't know, little bench they're sitting on. In my head, it's a gazebo. I don't know. And she's whisked into this little place with Hugh. And he's like, you're hot enough to be here. Meet the twins. And do you want to come upstairs with me? And she's like, well, I came with my friend, Allie. And he goes, let me see your friend. She points to Allie and he goes, no, no to her. As Allie is looking at them, waving to get in. And I mean, Allie is a woman we need to check on. A brunette with just a hint of curves. And being told she's the ugliest woman alive and can't come up the staircase to the sex harem. Like, I really felt for her. As a brunette, I really felt that pain. And I would argue that this is a common recurring theme in the book. Is like, Crystal doesn't know how to be a girl's girl. And, you know, I've heard you talk about it a thousand times. Female friendships are what makes us. And when you don't have that, how do you survive? And I think this book answers the question, which is that you don't. Like without any female friends, this can happen to you. And then it, we're going to get to it later in the book. But she even writes in her 30s, she's like, I made a female friend. I think her name's like Anne and it's coming up. But yeah, she just like didn't have that sort of like womanhood or like if my friend's not coming, I'm not coming. 
you know, mentality that keeps you safe. And Allie is just whisked away, never to be heard from again. She's Even though her thriving. blood face is in this book. I <laughs> hope she's thriving. That was like probably the luckiest day of her life. Yeah. Then from there, we go into Crystal's childhood. So she's like, I meet him at the Halloween party. We're going up the stairs in this beautiful mansion. And then we go back into her childhood. And to kind of give the overview, Crystal lost her dad very young. She worshiped him. He was a musician. Keep that in your head because she's going to date a musician. I'm going to put a musician in quotes, but she's going to date a musician later. Heavy quotes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I do think the fact that her dad was a musician probably played a part in that. And Her mom is dating. Her mom is getting plastic surgery when she's young, but also they don't have a lot of money. She goes through a lot of hard things, like she's molested by a friend's dad. And she's also raised in Arizona with sun in in her hair, just like trying to be Hugh Hefner's Blonde America. And oh my God, as someone who probably burned her scalp off with sun in myself, I really felt for this. Were there any moments from her childhood that stood out to you that I didn't cover. She was being raised by a chaos monster, you know? Like, her mother was just bouncing from guy to guy. They never really had a permanent place where they were living. Like, you know, it just seemed like her dad died and it just all just was crazy all the time. I think it was crazy before her dad died because she would talked about being, like, a baby and living at the top of a bar while he was playing and them listening to the baby monitor and her falling asleep on booths as like a young child. I mean, I have two kids myself, so I'm a little bit like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And she did write that her mom totally lost herself after her dad died. And so it like must have escalated. And then on page 55, she wrote a sentence that might only mean something like really specific to me. But she talked about how a girl had keyed the word whore into her car, except she spelled it H-O-A-R, which somehow made it even worse, which I thought was a funny line. And I like shook in my boots because, you know, I have a a book coming out myself and in my journal, I had also been called a whore, you guys, very fun. But I wrote it in my own journal as H-O-A-R. And I was like, oh my God, just a generation of (laughs) H-O-A-Rs, you know, just trash millennial women just trying to survive. (laughs) We're all being called whores and (laughs) I was misspelling it. And I was like, what a time to be alive. But I just want to like note here, like obviously doing this podcast, but more and more in life, I really felt so, so alone in my experience in the early aughts. And the more I read and the more I talk to people, it's like everyone who grew up in this era was being called a whore, I feel yes. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the early aughts experience of womanhood. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, anyways, new merch, H-O-A-R. H-O-A-R. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a whore. whore <laughs> and Chelsea, you skipped over the part where she talked about divergentizing herself. Oh, yeah. Do you want to tell us that? I mean, she just was like, well, I I just wanted to get it over with. I just wanted to not be a virgin anymore. When I had my first time, I just wanted it to be clean. And she literally just used a, a like a number two plastic, you know, to divergenize herself. I think it was just like a shower she gel or something like that. Or she yeah. And she used the shower gel as the lube. Yes. I mean, <gasps> I mean, let's just start using things that aren't lube from an early age. And also that idea of like, oh no, if I bleed when I'm having sex for the first time, that's gross and icky and guys don't like that. So I better shove a shampoo bottle up there and like do it myself. And then she literally said like the messy part out of the way, I had sex for real with Liam. And and it was just this random guy that she, you know, just went and had sex with and just was, it just made me so sad for her. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a really sad start. And then it, there's this boyfriend, Greg, who's like her saving grace and she loves him. It's like her first love, the first person who really gets her, the first person where she has like a beautiful experience with sex. And then years into their relationship, she gets pregnant and she has an abortion. And the way she writes it is that it kind of tears them apart and that she pushes Greg away. Greg then enlists and goes to Afghanistan. And she starts dating a guy named Owen, who is this horrible older boyfriend who like sells drugs. And she's with him when she gets a boob job. But she's always thinking like, I'm going to go back to Greg, even though I broke up with him. And Greg is emailing her from Afghanistan. And then one day she hears from a friend that Greg died when he was overseas. And she says she's like never the same after that. I really loved the way Greg was written about it, but he comes up a lot, like Mm -hmm. a lot in the book. What was your guys take on this relationship? It was kind of like the foundation or the cornerstone for what her understanding of love was. Like it felt like the only time that she had ever been seen and fully loved. And it wasn't just transactional or just let me get rid of my virginity. It seemed like they really loved and cared for each other. And I don't know that she's ever seen that again. I agree. And not in this book, for sure. No. And it seemed like she was searching, constantly searching for that. It's particularly with Q Hefner. You know, she was always trying to get that same connection that she had with Greg, and she could never find it. Not even close. So true. And then this is where I thought just the writing was incredible, because she's taken us to the Halloween party. She leaves us on the staircase, goes back into her childhood, and then this is how that chapter ends. She said— I'd like to say that I hesitated that night at the Halloween party when Hef and the Shannon twins and Amber and I were walking up the stairs to his bedroom. I'd like to be able to say that I thought twice about following them into Hef's bedroom when they held open the door and invited me in, or that I hesitated when I saw the king-size bed, or when the large television screen started playing porn movies. But I didn't. I was 21 years old and had already lost the only two men I'd ever loved. I had already lost myself. I thought I had nothing else to lose. And I I just thought that was beautiful and also... You know, I know Holly wrote about this night of like the first night when you're kind of taken up there and you are forced to have sex with Hugh Hefner if you want to like continue this adventure into Playboy land. And I liked Crystal saying like, I didn't hesitate. And I was like, this is what you do. And she's like, just go, like, just do it. Just get it over with, which I feel like is something a lot of us were like taught to do of like, just get it over with or things like that. And how she was so like destroyed inside. She didn't feel like she was losing anything. What did you guys think of that part and and that whole like bedroom scene? I felt like I needed to take a shower after I read it, you know, and, and, and his bedroom is really the least sexiest place on earth. And she's like, oh, there's stuffed animals and it's just shit everywhere. And ugh, yeah, just no, thank you. It's like the least sexiest yeah. place. Yeah. I mean, E at the time was the Playboy machine. Like they would always have the like nights at the mansion, even before the girls next door, there would be specials about like the parties at the Playboy Mansion and Hugh Hefner is the man and all this stuff. And like, truly, you can see a pattern of the women that he invites into his room and that they are desperate. And they look at sex as transactional a lot of the time because other than Greg, her other sexual experiences seem to be like sexual assault or having to have sex in order to survive. So like, I, I do appreciate her honesty and it also overlaps with part of, you know, the other girl's stories about, I did it once. I had to see it through. Otherwise this was all for nothing. Yeah. Otherwise I've like had sex with Hugh Hefner in a way that feels like if it didn't pay off, then you've done this like horrible, gross experience for nothing. 
Let's go through the routine. So this routine has been outlined in Holly's book. It's been outlined in Crystal's book. It's come up other places, which is that some girls lead you upstairs. You're the new girl. They give you gross silk pajamas. So this is a closet full of pajamas. They'd be recycling the pajamas and he loves his like gross silk pajamas and his sheets are silk. And listen, have you ever had a silk on silk experience? That's some slippery shit. So a lot of balance had to go into this whole night. Then this dude uses baby oil on his dick, which is like, sir, that is not a lube, but he uses baby oil all the time. He puts porn on the TVs. It's girl on girl porn. And then there's a moment where often the girls who are already with you are like, I don't want to fucking do this again. So the reason they find new girls like Amber that night and Crystal is like, you go first, tire him out and maybe I won't have to. And so- they push the other girls first. And then also you kind of have to like perform with the other women of like, ooh, like we're having like that fake lesbian sex for hetero men. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like not for us, but like somehow for them. I, I just look at this whole thing as like a bored orgy. Yes. And is there anything worse than a boring orgy? I mean, it, I really feel like it's all of it's a power play. Even she said that the girls begged him to stop using it the baby oil. because it was making them sick. They were getting infections and he just kept doing it. Like all of it's a power play. He didn't even get off from them. He got off from himself. You're so right. And he physically always got himself off. Yeah. Like actually did not get off with the women. But I'm just sitting here being like, we don't have a sex swing involved. You don't like have a paddle. Like there's literally no diversity to these nights he's having. Why? Isn't that so odd that it would be that routine? It's his whole life is like that. Like every day yes. is the same exact thing. He doesn't really know what he's doing. And she said it over and over. Like he was not good at having sex, despite the fact that he created this empire based on male pleasure. I mean, it's not the shock of the century that Hugh Hefner sucks in bed, but I will enjoy every time a woman writes it down in detail. Me too. Like I love that. And then there, I thought there was this really cinematic moment the next morning where Amber is another girl who got roped in that night to coming upstairs and she's going to remain a staple in Crystal's life, which I loved. That's probably like her one female friend before she leaves the mansion. And there were mirrors above Hugh Hefner's bed. And so the next morning when they wake up, the twins are gone and Amber's on one side of Hugh and she's on the other side and they've just had this you know, nights that they've both agreed to participate in and they are looking up in the mirror at each other. Kind of like, what the fuck have we done? Or like, you know, what do we get out of this? And he tells them both like, you can enjoy it here for the weekend. And they just have what feels like going to Disneyland for them where they were like, we saw the birds. We got on an elliptical machine. He had tanning beds. <laughs> it's like, oh sure, boy. They looked at every room. Yeah. And then at the end of the weekend, they go home and it's interesting because- I remember reading in Holly's book of her feeling like, I can't have done this for nothing. I have to ask him if I can stay. And Crystal has that same want, except she goes back to her life. She's trying to be a model and she's working for like an energy drink company and like doing that type of modeling. Anyways, Hugh Hefner calls and is like, come move into the mansion with me. What did you guys think of that? Because that feels like a big step from him, right? Of what we know from Playboy culture. I think from what I understand after Holly left, since he was getting so much older, he knew he needed someone there with him to take care of him. And so I think he was probably like, I got to cast a wide net. Let's yeah. get someone here that acts like they care about me. Okay, it's not the twins. Because I don't think there was any 
illusion that they were in it for the long haul. I think he was trying to get someone that would be there with him, take care of him, and look out for his best interests. And he would have asked someone else if Crystal hadn't been that person. Yeah, but he maybe saw like, oh, this is the person who will like be pliant to all the things I want. He's been a groomer for so long too that he probably is good at his grooming. He probably has his finger on the pulse of like who's needy, who's desperate. And I think he must have like sniffed it out in her that she wanted to come and live there and needed the security of his mansion. And Mary even said he always keeps the one with the broken wings. Mm. Yeah, which is like, and Mary said that as like a sweet thing. And it's like, no, Mary, it's purposeful. Well, then she stuffs all her things into trash bags and moves into the mansion. It reminded me of when Erica Jane puts all her shit into trash bags and moves into her, like, daddy mansion. And, you know, listen, I've used a trash bag for a suitcase many times, but I'm just like, ooh, it's like this suitcase of dreams. You know what I mean? Also, new merch, just trash bags? Unsure. So then... Dringo, that's what I'm calling it from now on. My celebrity book club drinking bingo. I'm going Dringo, page 87. She lists her exact weight. I wrote that weight check. <laughs> I know. I've marked that as well. <laughs> you guys, I have been in like the last, I want to say 15 memoirs I've read. They all have done the weight check. I have not reached one that hasn't done it. And she says she is 134 pounds. When Hugh Hefner says, ew, you're disgusting, lose weight, and pats her hips and is like, this has got to go or you're going to go. What's also weird to me is that she's listed her weight, but I don't know if she's listed Hugh Hefner's age yet. And and that was like something that to me was felt profound that like, A lot of this book, she mentioned he was old. Only a few times did she ever say how old he was. Because I was always like trying to do the math. Like, how old is he? They're exactly 60 years apart. Yes. In the pictures, she said he was 81. With his like old man hand on her leg in the pictures in the book. And she said he was, she was 21 and he was 81. He is two dads older than her. (laughs) That's the only math I can do. (laughs) Two dads. She also wrote like, which I highlighted it because it made me laugh. It was the page before when she did her weight check. She was like, there were so many celebrities at the mansion. And she's like, Corey Feldman. (laughs) Yeah. Paris Hilton, David Hasselhoff, Polly Shore. And I was just like, D-list, like, who are these people? (laughs) And Corey Feldman got a whole paragraph. I was like, this can't be good when he's your, like, big celeb experience. He was, like, the number one that she listed. It was so sad. I was really, you're so right about not naming the age, but you do name your weight. And I, I just kept thinking in this moment, like, why are powerful men not all of them, but why are really toxic, powerful men also losers? And hear me out on this. I just feel like you should have to have one thing to offer, like charisma. He did not have that. Good looks, did not have that. Intelligence, not really. Creativity, no. He just stole images and told women they were ugly and fat. And then suddenly he is powerful. And I'm like, shouldn't you have one quality to offer us where we go like, wow, he's not even a good listener. He's not a good conversationalist. He can't do small talk. She tries to tell him about her life and her dad dying. She said he patted her on the head, said that's sad, and walked away. Yeah, I mean, the only thing he has going for him is that he's rich. Yeah, Yeah, I think money is a lot of powerful men's currency, like literally. (laughs) It's just so interesting that you just, you can't even, I don't know, you would think it's like, oh, Hugh Hefner was so charming. No, he had like an agoraphobe schedule. Okay, so I am, uh, maybe we'll take a social clip or put a video up at some point, but I am wearing a full, bold red lip. Amy, I see you are as well. Beth, I see you have a lip on as well. It made me so happy because Hugh Hefner hates, hates red lipstick and hates a bold lip. I love a man whose enemy is lipstick. (laughs) He said, 
Your hair had to be white blonde, no roots showing. Light pink, translucent nail polish, nothing bright and nothing matte. Full makeup, but no dark lips. Quote, women who wear red lipstick look like harlots. And I remember Holly writing in her book that she wore red lipstick to be like old Hollywood. And he was like, you're a monster. Like it really seemed to scare him. And she cut her hair to look like Marilyn Monroe's. It's like his ultimate, she was trying to emulate and he hated it. Like, it's very strange. Yeah, it's so funny to me because I loved bold lipstick, you know, before I knew this. Had I not, after reading about this, I would have started loving bold lipstick. But I'm just like, oh, wow. It's so interesting how much he just hated red lipstick in a way that almost seems like a mental... I don't know. Like he had a traumatic experience with a tube of lipstick before. Show me on the doll where the red lipstick touched you. (laughs) Exactly. I think it's almost like he hates any way a woman sets herself apart. He wanted all of the girls to look the same. Yeah. And I think red lipstick is a sign of power. I I feel like when I wear red lipstick, I'm like, I'm a badass bitch. And, And I think that like most women that do wear red lipstick, it's a sign of power and brightness. And he couldn't handle that. Like that was something that he needed to squash real fast. Like you can't be individual or bright at all. Or confident. Or confident. Or confident. Yeah. I mean, I love the turn with red lipstick. At some point, I'm sure this was just a, a beauty burden to women. And now we're like, it's power, <laughs> which I, I agree. Okay. So this is one of the pages I had the most questions about. It's page 97. I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs. In February, three months after I moved into the mansion, we started filming the new season of The Girls Next Door. There was no discussion about whether or not I would do it or any kind of offer from the Playboy organization to compensate me for appearing on the show. It was perfectly clear that my participation wasn't an option. It was part of the deal. Hef got paid $400,000 per episode. I got paid zero. It didn't even occur to me that this wasn't a fair arrangement. I just felt lucky to be there. I'd heard of the show before I moved into the mansion, but I'd never wanted to watch it. To me, the real Playboy was the magazine and Hugh Hefner, not a campy, silly sitcom-like reality show. The previous seasons had three different blondes, Holly, Kendra, and Bridget. Now it was Carissa, Christina, and Crystal. I was nervous at the idea of being on television, but flattered that people thought I was someone important enough in Hollywood to be followed around with a camera. I'm just so, I don't know. I'm so confused at this part because at this point, in time, Girls Next Door has been on for five seasons. It is a cultural phenomenon. It is huge. It's huge to love Playboy and want to get into Playboy and be a part of Playboy. I would think this would have a much bigger role in your life. The only season Crystal is on, the sixth season, is the season that ends the show. It's It dies after that. Holly leaving was such a big deal. And she writes about it as if like, yeah, I'd kind of heard of the show, but yes, I guess I was going to be on it. Like not a big deal. And I just, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it would be, I just can't imagine the stakes of it felt so low in that moment. I think she has a complex relationship with the show in that the season she was on is what tanked the ratings. And I think, don't think it would do her pride any good to be like, yeah, I love the show. I was so excited to be on the show. Like, I feel like this is kind of saving her pride to be like, I'd never heard of it. I didn't get anything out of the deal. I have a hard time believing that, especially when you become Hugh Hefner's main girlfriend. I, I do too. Or, or even that you'd be like, hey, the pressure for this show to do well after 
the three girlfriends had left was immense or the tension I felt to replace, you know, the magic of that was on that show or really anything. But she just sort of feels like very meh about it all. And it feels, yeah, it feels hard to believe. It's really revisionist history. Like, it's so hard to believe that she lived on the planet Earth and she just was like, I didn't really know anything about it. You know, it just was like, come on, girl. You didn't live under a rock. I know. And also like downplaying it, like the silly, campy, stupid sitcom. It's still like this huge cultural moment in Playboy and where it pulled back the curtain on this mansion no one had ever gone inside. And it actually pulled away a lot of the prestige of the brand. I don't know. I just wanted any feelings from her besides like no heartbeat, just like went on the show. When you talk about her not having friends, I would expect that she would be like super trauma bonded with these three other women and that they would be really close friends and they would have like a chat, you know, like a text thread. They'd be like called baby oil trauma, you know, like that they would like be texting with each other all the time about like their horrible life together. And and she just acts like these women just don't exist on the same planet that she's on. It's just wild to me. Yeah, the twins, the twins are kind of dead to her and Amber is still in her life, but Amber was never on the show. Yeah, she's gone on her Instagram stories and talked about how much she hated the TV show and she had no good feelings about it. And also a vibe I get throughout the entire book is she saw any other woman as competition. Yeah. Other than Amber. I don't know what her magic spell was, but it's very clear that like throughout the time she started isolating Hef from other women and on Bridget and Holly's podcast, they talk about how close they were with so many of the women. So I really feel like there was this defensiveness in her that prohibited her from being able to have that kind of bond. Yeah. And also, you know, Holly talked about the famous seven girlfriends and how much they hated her for following the rules and being a snitch. I would have loved that from Crystal. There could only be one girlfriend. There literally could only be one main one. And to have that position, you have to hate the other women or this happened or I didn't like this. There's just kind of like nothing, which is I feel like the part that's hard to believe, like either you would be bonded or something's happening. And it's interesting on her Instagram, she writes about hating the show because I wish she'd put more of that in. It's just like, yeah, I went on it. But then she said, when the camera started rolling again for the girls next door, my new nose and I got what I wanted because she had gotten a bunch of plastic surgery with the Playboy Mansion doctor. And she said, I got what I wanted, a Playboy pictorial. I was going to be Miss December 2009. And I mean, December, a huge month. Getting this is huge. As we know, like all Holly ever wanted was that cover. She shared it with Bridget and Kendra. And Crystal arrives and immediately is given this cover. And I kind of felt like this must have been Hugh Hefner giving her a bunch of success to try and prove to people that he has found someone so much better and is so much happier. And that like the three women who had left hadn't hurt him. But maybe I'm like projecting. What'd you guys think? I think that it was definitely to try to boost up the Girls Next Door show because it was always fun to Kendra, Bridget, and Holly that it was successful because they were Hef's girlfriends. They were interchangeable. And now that all three of them have left, I think he was throwing everything at the wall to try to get girls any kind of hype for Girls Next Door. Yeah, and it was 
just so funny how wrong that was. That show lived and died on those three women who made no money off of it. And the girlfriends are absolutely not exchangeable. Which he learned <laughs> in season six. Because that, yes. that was an abysmal, boring season. It was hard to watch. When we were reading Holly's book, you know, I was going back to rewatch a lot of episodes. And I tried to watch season six. And I was just like, I just don't even think. It's hard. I can buy into any of it. I tried to watch it this weekend and I got like halfway through the first episode. I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) This is not going to add any depth to this conversation. No, no, it's hard to watch. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And then she wrote something I thought was so interesting. She was talking about how she could never get away for the weekends because she was the number one girlfriend. She could never see family. She could never leave. It was the same with Holly, Bridget, and Kendra when they lived in the mansion. Kendra could always say she was going to San Diego to see her, quote, family and get away with it. I think that's why Holly resented Kendra. Kendra had a secret life outside the mansion, could escape when she needed a break. The rest of us weren't so lucky. So it's not a secret that Holly resented Kendra, but I did find it interesting that she wrote that in this book like really speaking for Holly in this moment on her relationship with Kendra in a book where she's not even talking about the girls next door television show and how it affected her. You know what I mean? Did you guys think that was odd that she included that? I know that Crystal is out of the three of them. Kendra's the only one that she's friends with, but it was kind of interesting to see her giving Holly some sort of a benefit of the doubt. Like, yeah, it sucked to not ever be able to leave. And I understand why she would be resentful. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's a nicer read. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that she probably could have done a lot more talking about all of their shared experiences, you know, and actually having a little bit more self-reflection about like, oh, this is my experience. And and probably Holly had this same experience. She doesn't put a lot of footwork into doing that. So it seems a little weird when she just throws that in out of nowhere when before she was acting like she barely even knew who those women were. Yeah, exactly. That's what like rang weird. Amy at the top, you're like, I'm diehard Holly. I really feel like there's certain debates or arguments in life that are such truth tellers on someone's personality. And I feel like one of those is like what side you fall on between Holly and Kendra. It's just like a real truth teller of who someone is. And also those women were so unique. Like I still remember thinking, would I be a Holly, Kendra or a Bridget? You know, and now we have like a crystal of these four women you could like see yourself in and how they went through so fucking much. And there's still so much beef between them all because they were raised in this cesspit of like, you will all hate each other and like vie for this shitty moldy crown that Hugh Hefner can give you, you know? Yeah. And from what I understand, a lot of the beef is, was also sown with the producer of Girls Next Door. And he kind of played into the, like, pitting the girls against each other, especially Kendra against the other two, because he specifically showed and treated Kendra like she was the silly youngest child. Like, she got away with so much. And it, like, bred a lot of drama within the other two girls as well. So he was, like, curating that for the show. Yeah. And he also produced both of their other spinoff shows. So he would kind of be like, ooh, who am I giving special treatment to? Who is getting more opportunity? Who am I giving more of my time to? Yeah, I mean, it makes so much sense. And also like watching the show, I think that's also like why it can be such a divider because Kendra was just sort of like, ha whatever, fuck it. Huh. That's obviously like not who she is entirely, but that's like what it was presented. And Holly is like, effort, trying, rules, stress. <laughs> it's like two very different approaches to this hellhole called the Playboy Mansion. Okay, so 
I want to read a little section called Hugh Hefner's Sex Meals. I loved getting the menu breakdown. I really did. She said, Mondays were for the men. Hef called it Manly Monday. Delusional. Way to tell on yourself, dude. Every week, a group of Hef's friends joined him for movie night. Men only, no women allowed. They gathered together for dinner, discussion, and a movie. Hef didn't join them for dinner, instead choosing to eat in his bedroom. Oh my God. He never joined the buffet downstairs, preferring to eat the same pre-movie food on a train in his bedroom. Canned chicken noodle soup, saltines, and a block of cream cheese. <laughs> I wrote, how is he not dead? Like, right, that's, that was my notes on that. Well, he is. <laughs> He's full of preservatives. Yeah. Yeah. And cholesterol. Ooh. Yeah. She said later he would have his regular dinner of pork chops and mashed potatoes if he was still hungry. Or if it was sex night, he would have a BLT sandwich. Not a great sex night food in my opinion. Sex night with bacon. What? Just reeking of bacon. Why is that any different from pork chops and mashed potatoes? Like, what is the logic? Yeah. Well, like, what was he thinking? Like, oh, this is a lighter meal. Like, this is my healthy sex meal where the women will do all the work all night long. Exactly. It's not like he's exerting himself. <laughs> so wild. Then we have the sex jewel, which is the schedule of sex. I'm trying to make it a thing. It's hard. So she said, Thursdays were for going on the town, at least in the beginning. Later, they became another movie night, but I was allowed to pick the movie. I picked the movies I knew would piss the guests off who would come for a hopefully decadent Playboy Mansion experience. I'd choose Little Mermaid or any movie that wasn't sexy at all. Just because I could, I was powerful on Thursday movie night until halfway through the movie, I'd see Hef pull out a little tissue and unwrap a small blue pill. My stomach would flip. I knew that moment I'd have to bring women up to the bedroom and perform. During the second half of the movie, it was almost like I could smell the baby oil and I would feel nauseous. Friday and Saturday were Casablanca nights where he would do classic movies and give his stupid little speech. And then Sundays were back to the false fun in the sun, roller skating, hula hoops, trampolines, and lollipops. And they would have like one of those parties. And then Mondays, it would start all over again. And then what happened on Tuesday and Wednesday? Tuesday was game night. They had to play Uno for hours and he would fall asleep because he was high on Percocet. Oh my God. Yes. And then Wednesday was the same Monday night crew, but for gin rummy. Yeah. Oh, even the games are old. I would have thought Hugh Hefner would, would be interested in an apples to apples situation at <laughs> <Right>? least. <laughs> I don't think if he could have played it in his original Playboy Mansion, he wasn't interested in it. I think he wanted to continue living his heyday Monday through Sunday every day. You're so right. And I don't think he had the humor or the wit to even pair two cards literally designed for anybody to be able to make a joke out of him. Like, I don't even feel like he had that skill set. No. And everyone would laugh at everything he said anyway, so it didn't really even matter. It would yeah. have been not fun. Might as well stick to the Uno. And then she wrote, this was horrifying, to avoid infections from the baby oil, she would resort to anal sex and said that Hugh Hefner couldn't tell the difference. She was like, it is so bad having sex with him with the baby oil. I have to have anal sex. Like, oh. She said he didn't notice. He is just pulseless yeah. and just dusty. And he didn't even know the difference between a vagina and an anus. It is just so and sad. He's, he's on painkillers the entire time. He is, yeah. Of course yeah. he couldn't feel the difference. <laughs> painkillers and Viagra. <laughs> yeah. The infection between those girls. It, it, like she said that they were always getting antibiotics. Like they were constantly on antibiotics because yeah. they were constantly having infections. And and he probably was too, based on how the super bug that he died from. Absolutely. So and gross. then I loved this line. She said, 
I didn't believe in the happily ever after I had once imagined in Monaco, but the idea I'd made a mistake terrified me. I'd invested far too much already. I'd come too far from Owen in San Diego to go back to that life. I didn't want to be the ex-main girlfriend of Hugh Hefner handing out t-shirts at monster truck rallies. Like that's some real ass shit. And that was going to be her option coming out of this in this Mm -hmm. year and this time. Or, you know, let's be clear. She also had the option to go work any other job anywhere else and like live a life. Like she did have that option, but the idea of like the world she wanted to be a part of. And then she said, I didn't know what I wanted to be or do when I grew up. So this modern day harem that I joined, that I was the leader of, was my best option. The time she refers to it as a modern day harem, I'm like, that is very astute. Very astute. And that she led it and felt like she had power, felt like she had some clout, felt like there was nowhere to go, felt that she would lose respect or prestige or like any sort of anything she'd ever accomplished was just by fucking Hugh Hefner and all that would go away and she'd have nothing. Like that feels very real. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right now and we'll be right back. Bad on Paper is a podcast that I think the cookies might love. It is a chat show hosted by Becca Freeman and Olivia Mentor, and new episodes drop every Wednesday. Both hosts are huge readers. It's a lot about books, and they talk about what they're reading every episode. Like us, their show hosts a monthly book club. The book club pick is announced at the beginning of the month and discussed in the last episode of the month. Recent picks have included Happy Place by Emily Henry, Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros, and Family Lore by Elizabeth Acevedo. Listeners say the show feels like having a glass of wine with your best friends. Topics range from everything from your favorite rom-com tropes to which hyped up products are worth it to how to get over your imposter syndrome. Occasionally, they are also joined by guests, often fellow authors, like Nora McInerney, Emma Straub, Jennifer Weiner, and more. Both hosts are currently writing books, so it's really interesting to follow their updates on the process of writing and publishing, if that's something you're interested in, and I know many cookies are. Even though there's a big back catalog, you can truly jump in anywhere. Bad on paper episodes really require no context, and you'll get to know the hosts as you listen. So perhaps you can tell from this podcast, but I'm a very... uh anxious person. I I operate on a high frequency and going to sleep is hard for me. It's hard to fall asleep. It's hard to stay asleep. And so the other night I got Next Evo in the mail, which is a CBD company. And I ate one of their strawberry flavored CBD gummies that was for sleep. And in the middle of the night, I had one of my normal wake ups and I thought to myself, Ooh, I'm like, I feel so nice. I'm just going to go right back to bed. And as I was falling asleep, I had the thought of like, wow, I'm, I'm going back to sleep. And in the morning I had forgotten I ate the gummy and I was like, how do, why did I sleep so well? And then I remembered it. So the next night I'm like, okay, I'm going to, tr- I'm going to try this again. Let's see if magic sleep happens. And lo and behold, I slept wonderfully. So I am so excited to talk about Next Evo Naturals because they have developed a clinically tested water soluble form of CBD and their gummies and capsules are proven to work faster and absorb four times better than oil-based products. I am assuming this is the fancy schmancy science that made this work because I have totally taken oil <laughs> droplets of CBD before, like during quarantine. Yes, yeah, or my husband, he was just, we were just dropping 
CBD into each other's mouths. And, you know, it didn't do much. So this is thrilling that I felt this way. I hope you could feel this way too. They also have their strongest gummy ever, the new Extra Strength Daily Wellness CBD gummies. They also have CBD lotion. And you know, you know, I mean, instantly on my skin. Just anything that can help me relax, I'm so into it. Next Evo is the only brand that has conducted human clinical studies to test the value of their products, and their label contents are 100% guaranteed, so what you see is what you get. Leave oil behind and start the year with more effective and fast-acting CBD from Next Evo Naturals. Get 25% off using code GLAMOROUS at nextevo.com. That's 25% off at nextevo.com, N-E-X. T-E-V-O dot com with promo code Glamorous. When you think of the messiest celebrity feuds of all time, who comes to mind? Is it Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun? Maybe it's Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan, or just about anyone from any reality TV franchise. Dis and Tell is a podcast from Wondery, hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each hilarious episode will take you through one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds and serve you a little dose of chaos every week. They recently covered the story of one of the greatest feuds you've probably never heard about, Prince and Michael Jackson. Even though this feud never really played out in the press, there's still plenty of drama and a lot to unpack. And the explosive and dramatic fallout between Candy Burris and Phaedra Parks of The Real Housewives of Atlanta. They went from TV besties to sworn mortal enemies and their relationship ended with a criminal allegation that rocked Bravo and its fandom for years to come. So if you're ready to gossip and add some more chaos to your life, follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Dis and Tell early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Let's continue the conversation. Yeah. It's funny with this because sometimes she would have such insight. You know, you'd read these paragraphs like that and you're like, she like gets it. Like I would even write in the side like, wow, insightful. Like she would totally get it. And then other times she would just act so like aloof and a little bit clueless about things. And sometimes it was hard to follow her. Because she was just going in and out of like getting it and not getting it. It really was like she would go in and out of consciousness, but choose the place where you're like, meh, and you continue in life just because. Because I mean, either way, how do you do it? Because it's like 10 years, 10 years with this dude. She said everything was, you know, transactional in the mansion. And she said, there was a guy I used to date who really generously lent me his house as a sanctuary. And he decided to blackmail her. He called the mansion and told them I was meeting lovers at his house. He said he would go public with the information. They paid him to go away. It didn't matter if it was true or not or how I felt used and exploited. Going public would have been an embarrassment for the man that was Hugh Hefner, the man who was so sexually satisfying no woman would ever want another man in her bed. The man I once dated was the first man to blackmail me, but he wouldn't be the last. Over the years, I would be set up again, falling for con men like the one from The Bachelor Show who met me under the guise of selling wine to the mansion and manipulated me into confiding that I felt trapped and unhappy. It kind of sucks, I said honestly. I didn't know he was secretly recording me. Hef paid him $15,000 to destroy the audio recording of me admitting my unhappiness. At no time did anyone step up and tell me that blackmail is illegal. Secretly recording someone is illegal. Nobody, not Hef, not Mary, not the Playboy lawyers ever asked if what was on the recording was true. 
if I was unhappy. There's so much to unpack here, but first I want to go to the dumbest thing, which is that it's a guy from The Bachelor who is selling wine to the mansion, who then blackmails Hef. I spent a lot of time on Instagram trying to decode who this was. I do not know anything about The Bachelor, unfortunately. I googled around and Reddit would suggest that it was Jesse Kovac. Oh, Jesse Kovacs. Okay, yes, I remember Jesse well. Reddit, I thank you. Reddit does some good-ass work. Something, Chelsea, that you passed by that I, I want to go back and, and just, we, we need to talk about this, is the Madonna song that Crystal played every time. So the first time she had sex with Hugh, she had mentioned that there was a Madonna song playing. And then like 130 pages later, she's like, oh, and that was Dress You Up With My Love by Madonna. And she played it every single time which is like such a power move. And I loved her reasoning that she was just like, I don't want to ever be in a grocery store and hear some song come on and associate that with having to be with Hef. And I was like, girl, that's brilliant. I was, I was thought that was great foresight. That, that was great foresight. And we should play a little bit of that song here. But I also imagine if she ever is in a grocery store and hears that song, we're going to see a breakdown. Like there's going to be like mental health cleanup on aisle five. Baby oil. Chucking the baby oil off the shelves. (laughs) (laughs) And then he just proposes to her. And it's written as nonplussed as it it seems it happens, which is that he handed her a gift, which was pretty shocking, where she's like, he never gives thoughtful gifts. And it was a Little Mermaid like music box gift. She was like, oh, this is really sweet that he like even cared about this and then realized there was an engagement ring in it. He never said like, do you want to marry me? He never got down on one knee. He just like gave her the thing and she never said yes. And it was just assumed that they would get married. And I got to say, this ring is hideous. Did you guys, we're going to put the ring on the Patreon photos. Like I, I don't, it would take a lot for me to call an engagement ring hideous. Almost every ring out there for the purpose of love and marriage is like a beautiful ring. Everyone deserves their own unique ring, blah, blah, blah. I mean that except this one, dude, like, I don't know. I guess like if he stands for the fairy tale and he stands for like rich dudes, given the nicest and finest why would this be the choice of rings? Somebody probably left it at the Playboy Mansion at some point, and they probably found it, and they just were like, here's a ring. Just use this one. Like, I, I, I can't imagine that he went and yeah. picked that out. That was just there. That's a good point. And I'm trying to find it now because it was in the photo section. Yeah, she, and she looks so unhappy in the photo of the two of them. She looks stunned. She looks stunned. And he's, like, grabbing her so tightly, like, show your ring. Like, she just does not look like she even is happy. Yeah, it's like a circular diamond. And then there are these little studs around it, like, kind of making a snowflake or a flower. But the studs are not jewels. It's not pretty. It felt like it emulated the relationship well. And then I wrote on page 147, I said, shots fired. Can we go read what I wrote? Tell me if you agree. She said, 
Partly, I was a bit blindsided that Hef wanted this. I hadn't seen it coming. Marriage to the legendary Hugh Hefner. I knew it was supposed to be this big win. According to Mary, Holly had always been pushing for it over the seven years she spent as the main girlfriend at the mansion. It seems like the ultimate prize. But what was this? I couldn't seem to wrap my mind around it, and I didn't like that it had all been planned as if I had no say in the matter. But I wasn't too surprised at it either. So... Here she's saying that Holly was desperate for him to marry her and he never gave it to Holly and then she got it. I This was another one where I'm like, why would you include this if you were not trying to poke the bear? But what do you guys think? Oh, I think she is 100% trying to poke the bear. Yeah, she was like, yeah, I'm trying to say like, Holly always wanted it and I got it. You have to also realize that so much of the content in this memoir overlapped with Holly's book. That there has to be some sort of a different narrative surrounding the routine and that he ate the same dinner every night. So I think it's to be shady, but I also think it's to set her story apart from Holly's. Right. Interesting. It's odd because she could have totally been like, I just thought this was so weird and I just had to do it. And that would have been a totally great story. Like, I don't think you have to say like, Holly always wanted to marry him and couldn't. Do you remember? I mean, I'm trying now to remember Holly's book. Did she ever write about that in her memoir of like wanting Hef to marry her and he never would? I think it was more of like just a shtick for the show. But the assumption when Kendra and Bridget moved out was that she was going to be the only girlfriend Maybe they would get married. They had tried in vitro fertilization. So I don't think that it was on, like, at top of her mind as much as the show made it seem, especially at the end when she's like, oh, my God, I'm about to be the only person getting the brunt of all of this. Yeah. And I don't want this. Yeah. So fascinating. Well, then she talks about Hugh Hefner's narcissism, which is just... It's been on display, but like this man, even just the routines alone, but not to mention all the other like abuse and the way he held power. And she wrote this line where I said, everybody remember this forever. I'm going to read on this podcast. If you're listening, remember this forever. (laughs) It's this is just a, I'm going to say hat tip in life. She said, power is insidious when it masks itself as generosity and generosity is insidious when it's a camouflage for control and both power and generosity are confusing when they gaslight you into believing they could be love i mark that i mark that passage with like a big exclamation point take it home with you everybody (laughs) yeah that's a good one then she doesn't write about girls next door ending or caring it's just gone. She doesn't write a thing about it. Like, you don't think that was a big deal in the mansion. Like, it was keeping the brand alive. It was bringing a lot of money in. It just ends, and it's like, meh, whatever. And obviously, she's going to go into the, like, marrying Hugh Hefner show that they set up in its place, but didn't write about it at all. I thought that was so strange. She didn't seem to give much credit to, like, the twins leaving either. She's like, and then the twins were gone. Good riddance. You know, she was just yeah. sort of like, this, that chapter's over. Yeah, her whole persona is kind of being above it all when it comes to Girls Next Door and the twins. And so it's just kind of carrying on with that narrative. I'm not surprised. Yeah. And then the, like, Holly, Bridget, and Kendra have spoken about, like, how they didn't get any money from Girls Next Door despite the show relying on them. And so I love that she included all this. She said, when they set up the show Marrying Hef, my heart sunk when I saw that he was giving me a token $2,500 talent fee for the whole series. And clearly him proposing was like, oh, maybe this can be a show that keeps us going. 
And she said, I had overheard Hef and the producer Kevin talking excitedly about what their earnings from the marriage show were going to be, $800,000. And she said, I tried to keep my voice steady as I told him I overheard him and Kevin talking about how much money we were making for the show, how much they were making off of me. I'm not expecting half or anything. Of course not, I added quickly, but maybe something more significant than this, something to make me feel valued, I thought, but didn't say, like I have a seat at the table. Hef studied me, eyebrows raised. What are you in this for? He asked coolly. It felt like an accusation as if I was a gold digger, like everyone else assumed, like in those media interviews I had been forced to do. And she slams the door on him and she's like, I'm going to run off the property. Like how fucking dare he? And as she's running out towards the gate, she heard his voice over the mansion loudspeaker. Close the back gate, he boomed. If Crystal tries to leave, detain her. I had thought I was a figurative prisoner locked into his house because of my own fear of not being able to build a life on my own because I had been programmed to believe that the minute I stepped away from Hef from his world, I was nothing. I never thought I was an actual prisoner, as he said, detain her. And she goes back in the mansion and says nothing. <laughs> I know, it's like it's like two on the nose to Beauty and the Beast. Like, oh God, are you serious? It's crazy. See her back up in her tower. In her like moldy, gross tower where she lives in a closet with a vanity. Oh my God, it really is a sick fairy tale. It really is all the overlaps of her being like a Disney person and talking about all the fairy tale Disney movies. It's like, it really is one gone wrong. Yeah, it's like a realistic Disney movie that she is participating in where it's like, the princess is a prisoner to a narcissist and afraid she's not economically viable as a woman in 2013 after being Hugh Hefner's girlfriend. In order to survive, she has to marry a prince. Exactly, exactly. And that is a good transition, Beth, because she's about to meet a real prince just the way his daddy is a real doctor, Dr. Phil. Oh. Here we go. So she starts setting aside money from her allowance from Hef every week, which she has to be sneaky about because he always keeps the allowance high enough that they can get beauty done, but low enough that you cannot put any of it away and like have any power of your own. So little by little, she's trying to make money on her own. She tries to become a DJ. And then she said, I wanted to learn about DJing. So I asked to be set up with some musicians And somehow that led to Jordan McGraw being introduced to her, Dr. Phil's son. And she said, Jordan was indeed a talented musician. I didn't find myself attracted to him initially, but he was my age. And then Jordan would say things like, tell me about your dad. I want to know everything about you. And in a world where Hugh Hefner patted her on the head and said, that's sad and never wanted to know anything. She, of course begins to fall in love with him. And this was another connection I felt to Holly's book where both of them, like, in or, and I, not just Holly's book, but women in my life, women I know, where in order to leave a horrible, abusive man, you have to find a different, horrible, abusive man. Not that you have to, but you do. So it's like Holly leaves with Chris Angel, fucking loser magician, and Crystal leaves with Jordan McGraw. The Playboy, the douchebag pipeline is strong. Strong. It really just dulls all the senses to make you think your hero uh, could be Chris Angel or Jordan McGraw. They find these guys that like love bomb them too. Like Jordan McGraw is such a love bomber. He's so like just clingy and awful. Yeah. Oh, and he used his dad. So this is a daddy-son manipulation duo. 
where his dad would give her counseling and be like, you're a, you're a beautiful young woman. Like you're vibrant. She's 25 years old at this point. He's like, you have your whole life ahead of you. Like, don't be trapped in that house. Trying to give her all this counseling. And she said, I didn't consider that the father and son who were encouraging me to leave to get out right now might've had an ulterior motive even with the blackmail, with the backstabbing in the mansion, with how many of my relationships had become transactional by nature, I was still someone who trusted first and asked questions later. And if I didn't get out soon, it would be too late. I would be married whether I wanted to be or not. And Jordan sends her a picture of an empty closet, a half empty closet being like, this is waiting for you. And she said it was June just days before the wedding that's being filmed for this TV show that has all these guests coming. This was thrilling. This is one of my favorite parts of the book. She said, one Saturday in the middle of movie night, as the classic black and white film Hef had picked flickered over the dozens of people filling the red velvet chairs, some of them lying literally at Hef's feet like dogs. I leaned over and whispered, I'll be right back. I casually slipped out like I was going up to the bathroom, smiling at the guests as I walked by them. Upstairs, I tucked my last few things into my purse and then got in my car and drove out to the security booth by the front gate. I could see by the worried looks on the guards' faces because I was off script. Crystal doesn't leave after curfew. Crystal doesn't leave in the middle of movie night. One of the guards reached for his walkie-talkie. I'm just running down to Walgreens, I said quickly. I have to pick up some tampons. Nothing makes burly security guards more uncomfortable than the word tampons. The walkie-talkie went down and the gate swung open. I drove out. That's how you escape, by telling you Hefner's security guards you need tampons. Saved by menstruation. Exactly. And then she, like, gets to Jordan's and turns off her phone, and she's the runaway bride, and the whole wedding has to be canceled. I love that she was like, I wonder when he pulled out his little blue pill halfway through, if he even noticed that the woman sitting next to him was not me. (laughs) Or that he, like, gets up to his bedroom with a medicinally hard dick, and no girl is there. (laughs) I just seen a video of him just raging. That's like, that would be amazing yeah. if you could find that video. Oh, just like how long did it take him? So rough. And this was, this was another of my favorite parts. She said, when I was five miles away from the mansion, I pulled over. And in the last light of day, I pulled out from my purse, a red lipstick I had bought at the drugstore the day before <laughs> and slowly put it on in the rear view mirror. Hef may have hated red lipstick on a woman, but he hated defiance even more. It's like, I just love the role lipstick is playing in this book. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And this is also very cinematic, too, of like driving out the gate. I have to get tampons, put it on your red lip and you're like, freedom. And then you get to Dr. Phil's house. It's like, "Er, never mind. This story is going to take a turn. And soon she hears Dr. Phil saying stuff like, my son bagged a playmate. Apparently the mom of Jordan, Dr. Phil's wife, is like, in a weird, gross marriage with her son, Jordan, and babying him and was like, I hate Crystal. And like the whole relationship kind of goes to shit. Tell me your guys' takes and thoughts on this relationship. It's a man with another mansion. You know, it's just like all these men with mansions. They're like waiver mansions to her. And she's like, I'll come. Yep, you got me. He just, you know, it's another like, he's going to come and save her. And he saw, he's awful. He's truly awful. It is like so gross. It's so gross that it's like, that's your bridge. Amy, what did you think of it? It went the only way I could imagine that relationship going, a dating a man child. Never date a DJ. But then Crystal's going to become a DJ. She's a little douchey too. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's that, it's that DJ world. <laughs> yeah. Then we enter this phase of the book, this run out of the book that I'm going to call depressed prisoner love story where she breaks up with Jordan. She has nothing. She's at home. She doesn't know how to go forward. She's done nothing with her life. Hugh Hefner calls is like, I've learned a lot. Mary calls and is like, Hugh Hefner misses you. And they're just like, hey, why don't you come back? And she's like, okay. And just goes back, goes back to the mansion. There was not enough fanfare around this decision for me. No, she sort of just slinked back. She was out for like six months and she already in that time like had a failed lingerie business. She just was doing poorly and was like, I guess there's nothing else for me out there. Can't sell lingerie. I guess I'll go back. Which is so wild because there were so many other life options for her. It's like become a surf instructor. Be one of those people who's like, I'm really into traveling. You know, (laughs) go to Italy for six weeks. Get a new personality that involves like telling people how the pasta is made. Like anything. And it was just like, yeah, I failed. I'm depressed. I'll go back. Yeah. I don't know that she really did have that many options. She wasn't really loved by Mm. the public. She had just left Hugh Hefner. He probably had connections that would cut her out of a lot of modeling gigs. She eventually ended up traveling and being like a travel person. But what money would she have to travel with? Like she had no income. So I think she didn't have a college degree. Her mom is very flighty. And her mom was like, get back together with him, which that's a huge part of this of like, oh, that's how she was raised. That's how her mom is acting. Like, of course she went back. Yeah, Her her mom was trying to get her to go to some prince. There was like a foreign prince who was trying to like buy her. And ultimately, like when you're in an abusive relationship in this one, I think is extremely abusive. You often go back. You often have been made to feel for so many years that like you have nothing beyond them and that is the best you can do and that you should go back. And she does. And the book is just so, it's good, but it's like so eerie after this because when she goes back, she just kind of takes it on. Like basically before she was fighting back thinking, I still want to be someone or I still have more to this, or maybe I don't like this. And when she goes back, she's like, I am choosing this and I'm going to accept this life. And she said, Hef was now afraid of me leaving. And that little power was power enough. So she has a little bit of power now. And she said, I cleaned out the other girlfriends. There would be no more of this constant competition with other women, half making his little manipulative comments to pit us against one another or make us feel lesser than in another woman's eyes. I knew how to play the game now, how to navigate politics of the mansion, and I knew how to get rid of girls I didn't like. Half hated drama among the girlfriends. As much as he liked us to feel competitive with each other for attention, he found it distasteful when things erupted. And so she basically uses this to get all the women out. But here's another place where this is framed positively of like, I cleaned all these women out, but I think it must've been much more intense and dramatic than that. And removing all these women must've been difficult. It also means she had no allies and no friends she wanted to keep on. And because Hugh Hefner wants sex to be a group activity and she hates having sex with them, She employs Amber, her old friend, to come up to the mansion and help out with sex and have sex with Hugh Hefner. And he would pay her, quote, gas money. But, you know, he's just paying her like $2,000 as a way to continue his rituals without having other girlfriends around. What did you guys think about her, like, cleaning out the mansion? That was so 
strange to me because he has been historically uh, characterized as someone that was in control, did not give up control, did not let his girlfriends make any decisions. And now that she's back, he's done a complete 180. She has the power to oust all of the other girlfriends. Um, She has the power to dictate his sex life, which really... Part of it makes sense because he was getting to the age where he knew he would need a partner to be his caretaker. So he might have felt like the the time was ticking and he needed to just go ahead and agree and make it happen. But also there's that part of it just doesn't seem authentic. Like there's more there going on than what's on the page. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I wonder like. So he, what year did he die? So this was 2012. He was 86. He died. He still like lived until he was like 91. I, I just wonder what his like mental state was too at this time. You know, like he put on a good show probably for like pictures and whatever, but I don't think he was like out and about in public as much anymore. So he's also just like addicted to Percocet and probably infected all the time. Who the hell knows what was going on with this man? So he might not have been well. Yeah. So she, it might've been a little bit easier for her to take over, but also I think it's, she's a little full of shit. I think, I think it was probably a little bit more, more dramatic than that. And is Mary still alive? Yeah. Cause I feel like Mary also has a role in this. Mary, Mary was still alive because Amy, as you said earlier, it feels like she's not a girl's girl. It feels like she doesn't have girlfriends. Well, nothing says that more than getting married to you, Hefner, and your maid of honor is Mary. <laughs> Mary was her maid of honor. It's like, oh, yikes. <laughs> Where was Amber? Yeah, exactly. Where is Amber? The Mary situation is very strange because whenever I watch Secrets of Playboy, she was very much characterized as like a, almost like a Ghislaine Maxwell. Yeah. Like she was a facilitator for Hef. Meanwhile, Holly and Bridget love her, adore her. The, she hung the moon and Crystal can't stand her. So it's like, she's a character that I can't get a firm grip on. It's like she was really important to this, the centrifuge of power that Hefner held and being a woman guiding other women in. Was Mary in love with Hugh Hefner? I mean, Mary stayed with Hugh Hefner till the, she died. Crystal said that in the book. She was like, people said Mary saw herself as like in love with Hugh and like the real woman. And then on page 180, I wrote, girl boss gobbledygook, <laughs> the math don't math. Okay. She said... I put an end to the demoralizing allowance ritual once we were married instead of raging for direct deposit of my allowance so I didn't have to hold my hand out and beg. I love this. I submitted my credit card bills to the office and the office paid them for me. It was a bit more freedom and a little bit more self-respect, but I was still saving every penny I could. The prenup meant that should Hef and I get divorced, I would walk away with virtually nothing. So I saved and I learned how to invest in the stock market. I formed an LLC, studied real estate, and bought first one house and then another. And this is where I stop and I say, wait, (laughs) buying a house is a lot more than ciphering away part of your $800 allowance a week. And learning about the stock market is tight, but unless I'm a dumbass, and that is highly possible, I think it takes a little more than a year to like get the stock market to like rock your bank account. You know what I mean? Studying real estate is cool, but again, how did you buy the first house? Like, I just feel like we are missing a step and it was like very generalized. She starts flipping houses. She said, I learned about passive income and did my best to create various income streams. Like what? What do you mean passive income? Maybe renting out the house? 
she did do like those paid ads on like Instagram. So I think that that's what oh, okay, she's talking that's about. Tight. Okay, I like that. But see, I want her to spell it out. Like, give the girls the tips and tricks. Like, well, somewhere she said she did like the weight loss tea, and she's still hawking weight loss tea. So I assume <laughs> there are multiple partnerships. I see, and that that was like the flat tummy tea days, yeah. right? Okay, and she's still doing it. Mm-hmm. Listen, you got to get that money. I like that she wrote it in the book and was like, "Fuck this shit," and continues yeah. to be like, "Hey, get some tea." Then she said, I DJed every Saturday in Vegas at the Hard Rock Cafe for $7,500. She said she was doing rental properties, day trading, and the business partnerships she kept secret from everyone. I vowed never to rely on anyone else again for my financial security. I love the message of it, though. I love that she was like, I'm becoming financially and economically independent in my own person, even though I'm still in this stupid mansion. I would imagine that all of her listing off this stuff took place during the entirety of their marriage. I don't mm. think that it's like tight to the timeline of the book. I think it's just yeah. kind of like lapsing and saying like, this is all I did throughout that time to make myself more financially secure. Then huge turn, she gets sick because the mansion is covered in black mold. It's a moldy, damp, disgusting mansion. I think we could have known this from episode one of The Girls Next Door when they first showed this nasty ass mansion, but we don't know it for years until she literally gets poisoned from it. This section was very hard for me. Oh wait, also being a physician, I imagine it was very difficult for you. I have a lot of exclamation points. I was on California, like CDC website being like, how does she have Borella in California? She lists that she's got three different infectious diseases at the same time. She has Lyme disease, Bartonella, which is cat scratch fever, and uh, Babesia, which Babesia doesn't exist in California. It's only on the East Coast. So unless she went to the East Coast... She couldn't have even gotten that. So it's just so like hokey. Beth, I have so many questions and I want to talk about all this. Is there any way that at the Hard Rock Cafe, she's spinning, she's scratching. Someone from the East Coast comes up to her, yells in her face, play Beyonce, play Beyonce. And she got that disease from them. It's tick-borne. So these are all animal vectors. So Borrella is Lyme disease and they, they do have Lyme disease in California. They don't have deer ticks, but they have other ticks that they can get it from in California. But Babesia, you can only get it from a deer tick, and they don't have deer ticks in Las Vegas or California. So she could it live in the mansion from someone else, from someone visiting? Maybe the animals that they have in the zoo that are like I don't, I have no idea. Unless somebody brought the tick with them, there's no way to get it from human to human. So then she was on IV antibiotics for six months, which is just not. It's not a thing. It's just not, this is like very naturopathic. She, she saw a holistic gastroenterologist. So it just doesn't, this is not. I actually, I didn't catch any of this, Beth. I just read it and said, okay, but what do you mean it's not a thing? My book, like, look at the notes that I have in here. It is just, I just went like crazy. I was like, what? But it's not a thing like people don't prescribe those types of antibiotics for that long or it's more of a like naturopathic. It's a naturopathic. Like like the, to put somebody on six months of antibiotics is like you could kill somebody. I've actually had somebody die of liver failure from just antibiotics given to them by a naturopath because they, they were just oh, wow. toxic to their liver um, and they died of liver failure. I, I would never put anybody on six months of IV antibiotics for anything. Whoa. It's crazy. I mean, I think the mold stuff makes sense, but she was like, they found mold in my body, which is like, she has a functioning immune system. So there's no way that she had like fungus growing inside of her body. It makes sense that she was like reacting to it. 
Interesting. There's like been drama about another housewife having Lyme disease. Shit, what's her name? Yolanda. Yolanda, yeah. I don't know. This is just such weird like territory to navigate, right? It's tough because like she's clearly sick with something. You're saying the medical information she's giving us is from naturopaths and that's just like a totally different way to interpret. I would love to see her medical records. You know, this is all like, I see. this is all see. me basing <laughs> on what she's telling me. But also she said, I was really anemic. Okay, well, that tracks that she doesn't feel good. And she also said she took out her, her breast implants. Like, And that's what Yolanda Foster ended up doing. She took out her breast implants and then felt better after. So maybe this was all breast implants. Wow. And not Yeah, because she said her body was rejecting the boob job she had gotten in earlier. She'd already had surgery to like take out the tissue that was hardening around her breast implant because her body wasn't accepting this like foreign object. She'd already done that. And even then didn't realize till much later that like she was still getting sick. And we talked about this on the Ginny Jones episode too of like, these breast implants making women sick. Crystal's obviously like sick and feeling terrible from stuff and like looking for answers, which is also so funny to have a physician on this episode. <laughs> Going crazy. I mean, I don't, I'm not just counting, like Lyme disease is real and it makes people sick and people have like lasting effects from Lyme disease. I think this is all post-baby oil sequela. <laughs> this is big baby oil coming back to get you, just secreting from the body. So- Then she's like getting better. I loved where she was like, I'm not wearing makeup. I'm living in pajamas. I'm sick. I have to focus on my healing. I'm taking out my fucking breast implants and they are still married and weirdly kind of living this settled life together where this like idea of like upholding Hugh's reputation is like out the door beside of these stupid movie nights, which will live on. And she starts going through the mansion and making herself busy. And she sort of is like, I am the wife. Like I'm the woman of the house. I'm going to run Hugh Hefner's last years of his life. And as she's doing that, she lightly introduces a man named Diego. Like it is no fucking big deal. She's like, and then obviously, you know, I was seeing Diego and I was like, wait, what? Like, Hugh Hefner doesn't allow this, doesn't allow outside boyfriends. He must have been so old and out of it. Like, he just couldn't track it. He couldn't care. But also, the way she introduced it was, like, not a big deal. What did you guys (laughs) think of Diego? He just shows up. He's just here. He just shows up. Diego just slides right in, and she just casually is like, then we're more than friends. Yeah. I'm not shocked that uh, toward the end of his life, she was, you know, boning this other guy. (laughs) And... Like, he didn't even notice because he was all hopped up on painkillers and close to death. It seemed like toward the end, he stopped caring about keeping up the image. Like, he was fine to just let it rest. Yeah. Like, there's this part in the book where she realizes he needs a walker. Like, he just can't get around the house. And she says she wants to find him a nice, stylish walker. And she goes from Walgreens to Walgreens to Walgreens. And again, I say, this is Hugh Hefner. We're supposed to be rich. This is Hollywood. Like, our only option is Walgreens. Like, different Walgreens? Like, there's got to be something else or online. I think to myself, ooh, she is about to start, like, leather daddy line for walkers. Like, walkers for big boys who are still sexy and cool. And she should. She'd make a bunch of fucking money. No, she doesn't. She's like, but then I found a nice one at a Walgreens. I'm like, no, this was a business idea. Get on Shark Tank. Make your millions. But whatever. 
finds him a walker that has a little tray for his Pepsi, leaves it in the room. Hugh Hefner had been like, I'm never touching a walker, then sees it and is like, ooh, I love this. And he like starts scooting around the house. And as he is scooting around the house, she's like, he starts getting really, really sick. He's really suffering. I went to the islands with Diego. I needed a vacation so badly. Like I had to go. And I'm not surprised she's with Diego. I understand all of it. I just think the way it's written is so funny because it's just like, yeah, I just had this vacation. It was really nice. Diego made me feel whole. I'm like, how are you getting the time off? Like, what is, like, we have lived in a mansion of a prisoner for so long and all of a sudden we're taking island vacations. He was sick. Like, everything's just like no big deal. Mary was dead. So nobody was keeping track of her anymore. Oh my God, Beth, you cracked it. Mary did die. And she said, Hef didn't seem to care. He was like, "Mm, sad. He was like, give me more Percocet. Yeah, yum, yum, yum. Give me my pills. And then he gets really sick. She's back from vacation. And again, I hated this story where like maybe someone who works in the mansion comes running into the bedroom with pages printed off of WebMD. And she's like, I think I know why he's sick. I know why he's sick. I think Hugh Hefter has a UTI. And I just think like to build all this up, to build your empire, to be rich and your best option is WebMD like the fucking rest of us is haunting, haunting. Like at least now I can call Beth. I have more than Hugh Hefner. I'm going to call Beth and be like, do I have a UTI? Like where were his physicians? Bring him to Cedars. Like this man is like, like this powerful, famous, wealthy man. Like bring him to the hospital. Yeah. And everyone's like, we were never going to do that. It's weird because I'm not rooting for Hugh Hefner, but the way they handled his medical care, I was just like, doesn't he have private nurses who are like really well-trained? They were like, we couldn't find the right antibiotic for him. So I called my naturopath and they had some, of course. And it's like, well, then why didn't you bring him to the hospital? Because the hospital has like every antibiotic you can find, you know? So like there are options. Like I just, it's so confusing to me. They're like, oh, he just couldn't find it. It was a super bug. Well, she did write that he hated hospitals. So I feel like a lot of it had to do with his agoraphobia. Like, yeah, he's probably about to die and he's got an infection that might be easily treated, but he's also daddy. And if he gets better and then is pissed off that we took him to the hospital, we might get fired or daddy might be mad. Yeah. 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 And and she had to make the option of like hospital or she had to choose that moment of like, do we take him in? Do we not? And she's like, I didn't know what to do. And then she asked him if he was okay. And he says, I'm okay. And those were his last words. And she said during his last days is when she was her strongest and most assertive. And, you know, I, I read that like Bridget tried to come see him as he was dying. And she said, no, I don't, that's not in the book. I have no idea what happened. The same thing happened when Mary died because for some reason, Crystal was in charge of who got to see Mary. And whenever Bridget went to go try to visit her, she was told no. It's like that insecurity of like, you're so insecure in your position that you have to cut others out because I wonder if Bridget could have been an ally or a friend to her. But like, because she was friends with Mary, maybe that was like too much. And she's actually said, I think it was on her Instagram story, Crystal did that she didn't think it was important because Hef never really talked about Bridget. There's always this like undercutting. Yeah. I also saw on her Instagram that someone said, you know, 
Justice for Holly Madison, had her book been written post Me Too, I wonder if it would have had a better reception. And Crystal wrote, I totally get this. I was against Holly's book too until I grew up and learned and realized like I'm for it, which is like very beautiful and positive. But I feel like she goes back and forth between that growth constantly of like, I've grown. Oh my God, we're all pinned against each other. Let's lock arms and like be there for each other. And then sometimes goes right back into like, it's me against y'all. So the book goes like back and forth because she is like really astutely calling Hef out, but also his caretaker and protector. And she's doing both at the same time, which is really wild to read about. She's talking about the tweet that Kendra made when Hef died and how complicated it was. But then also she printed this tweet from the president of GLAAD of what she said when Hugh Hefner died. She said, it's alarming how media is attempting to paint Hugh Hefner as a pioneer or social justice activist because nothing could be further from reality. Hefner was not a visionary. He was a misogynist who built an empire on sexualizing women and mainstreaming stereotypes that caused irreparable damage to women's rights in our entire culture. I read her last sentence over and over again. She had said the secret thing out loud and I was shocked. And so it's like, she's clearly like waking up, but then she's still like, I'm in charge of his legacy. Like I'm Mr. Hugh Hefner. And she starts like going through his scrapbooks. And I know there's like all this controversy of like, where are the scrapbooks? Which I will just always love scrapbooks being a core part of this man's legacy. This is when she makes her first female friend, Anne. And it's like the first female friend. And it is page 221 of a 226 page book. It's four pages before the end. Not enough time with Anne. She can finally not, like, be so scrappy and fighting for him and fighting to be his number one. She can actually just, like, live her life. She can live her life and be. It's so wild because it's like she was clearly in this abusive relationship with a narcissist agoraphobe. He's, like, horrible. He took everything from her, but also she, like, participated in it. And then the the book is ending, and she's like, there's no fairy tale ending. I'm just kind of here now. I've just survived this. I'm here. I'm, I'm learning how to DJ more. I don't know what I would have had to do to change the course of my life and not be here. And one of the things I love most is that with Crystal Hefner, like in charge, the brand of Playboy is ending with just one giant meh. It's just kind of going out like, eh, whatever, like with a shrug. And I love that for this brand eating shit. Like it is time for this brand to go away. I was thinking like, are millennials the last generation to have bought into this? Like is Playboy culture dead for Gen Z or are there girls who will still kind of worship this? You know what I mean? I think it's still around as a symbol, but I don't think they really have the same connection that millennials had with it. For us, it was defining. The brand is just sort of like, total fade out. And I do think with another person in charge, it could have reignited itself and found new footing and grown with the times. I'm thrilled it didn't. (laughs) I'm thrilled it's going away, but it's really wild to read. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to read part of the end, which again, I loved. I loved, I loved how this book ended. She was going through all of Hugh Hefner's things and she found a letter that a girl Mackenzie wrote when she was 11 years old. And she said, I watch the girls next door. It's my favorite show. I have a dream to become a playmate. And she said, what do I have to do to become a playmate? And Crystal wrote this. You have to lose yourself, Mackenzie. 
You have to give up everything about you that makes you unique and special. You have to give up your mind and your opinions and any belief in choosing your own future. But mostly you have to get really, really small. So small, you don't leave a trace. So small, you don't cast a shadow. So small and quiet that even if you are screaming, you can't hear it. There are other letters in other scrapbooks, a million little girls sold a lie. There's a letter from a young man thanking Hef for teaching him how to treat women. I couldn't read anymore. I put the scrapbooks away and turned off the lights. When I closed the heavy vault door, I knew that I wouldn't come back. I wouldn't pull those books off the shelves again because they belong in the past in the darkness alone. And then below she said, when Playboy announced Hef's death, they posted a black and white picture of him, his hands folded reverently in front of him. At the bottom of the picture, they put a quote from him. Life is too short to be living someone else's dream. I'd heard him say it before, but never to any women, certainly never to the women he called his girlfriends, his babies, his beauties. He certainly never said it to me, his wife. But as I walked out of Iron Mountain and started the drive to my new home, I thought it might be the best advice I'd ever heard. Thank you, Hef. Life is short, but I'm finally ready to start living my own dream. It's not the big glamorous dream of fame and fortune. I thought it would be. My dream is simple. Happiness, friendship, love, truth. The journey to finding myself after leaving the mansion doesn't end, but I'm ready to listen to the voice inside me that's been there all along. That voice gets louder every day. So yes, I used to only say good things, but now I say whatever I want. I thought the ending was beautiful, and I loved her letter to Mackenzie. Mm -hmm. It was great. It was true. I mean, it basically summarized everything that she did in this book to survive through like that decade of her life. Yeah. And e- even though the timeline and things I picked apart, like I-, I I loved this book. Like I felt for her freedom. I like felt her arc. I felt emotional. I loved that it didn't end with, and I got married again to this dude. And like, I'm, I'm rich again. And you know what? For a woman who was always looking for a house, Beth, she's flipping them. Yeah. She's flipping them and grilling them herself, you know? And it's interesting because she was always looking for a mansion and she bought a small little house in the hills. That's all hers. And it's like small. She's come full circle. Yeah. It's like she, she never needed that shit. Yeah. Okay. So now we do what I call the book dull test. Three questions. First question. We're all going to answer it. Was the author vulnerable in the sharing of her truth? Amy, what do you think? I would say yes. Eight out of 10. Like there were definitely those lapses where we're like, there's something missing here, but I think she was as vulnerable as she was comfortable being right now. And there was a good bit of vulnerability in there. Mm-hmm. Beth? I think she was vulnerable and maybe as much as she could be. You know, I think she's yeah. still probably processing a lot of this and it's probably in hopefully deep therapy. And so she's probably still like unwrapping the trauma of what happened to her. That's so true. Yeah, I agree. I think she was really vulnerable about herself, her own journey, her life story, like where she was at. I think when it comes to like other people in situations, maybe it was like in flux. Okay, second question. Was it entertaining to read? Yes, I thought it was very well written. Yeah. Yeah, I, I loved it. I couldn't put it down. I agree. I could not put it down. I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Okay, Last question. Did reading this book elevate your life in any way? I would say not particularly because of so much about it I'm already familiar with from just being, you know, interested in that whole world and Girls Next Door. I think if it did, it was on the level that, like, I traditionally have not liked Crystal Hefner. And, like, I found some empathy for her and, like, could see the shades of gray for her in the story. Mm, that's really nice. What do you think, Beth? I think that this book pulled me into a black hole of Playboy in that I was like watching the Playboy docuseries. I just finished watching that today, reading this book, watching the girls next door again, looking on the internet. So 
I think in that regard, no, it did not elevate my life. It brought more trash into my life, which I welcomed <laughs> with open arms. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I needed it. I, it was a great distraction. I was at work trying to do my job. Instead, I was like watching Playboy docuseries. So it was wonderful. And I always enjoy having my life <laughs> taken down. <laughs> I am thrilled to be the trash bringer, uh, a job I take seriously in this world. Thank you. And, you know, I'm going to be a yes. I think the millennial unraveling could be another subtitle in this podcast. And, you know, we talked about on the Holly Madison episode, but like everything was drilled into us so supremely in the early aughts. And it was so driven by playboy culture of like sameness, 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 and a lot of ED culture, like eating disorder culture and our like, you know, beauty extremes that women are like still suffering from is like comes from this era. And I just having someone come forward as queen of the Hugh Hefner castle and be like, it fucking sucked. I was bored. Ew, gross. I'm sick. Like none of the sex was good. Bored during orgies. It's like, yeah, I love it. Like, you know, everyone was taught to look up to that stuff and having someone live through it and tell us what it was actually like and that it was always lies. It was always lies from the beginning. I just think is like so powerful. And yeah, it, it really brought me back to that Claire's when I was holding that $30 Playboy bunny belly button ring, wondering if I could ever do 600 sit-ups every day of my life in order to pierce it, put in my belly button, become the coolest girl in school. And I think it was very healing for the belly button piercing I almost got. The belly button piercing in my dreams has been healed. How about that? It is nice to see the women who are involved in this being like, this was actually a horror show and it was awful. And we didn't even have an orgasm. Yeah. Yeah. You're not even coming? My God. The one thing it should have promised. (laughs) So Beth, I want you to plug your Instagram and Amy, I... I just plug an idea, a thought, a podcast, something you just like want people to get into, want to leave this episode thinking about. Find me over at Smutty Book Reviews. It's at Smutty Book Reviews on Instagram. And I just read various Smutty books and write funny reviews about them. You have to read. It's not a visual format. It's all reading. (laughs) Fair. We love reading over here. And Amy, where do you want people to go? What do you want them doing, thinking about? I want them to be thinking about people that are making decisions in their local communities, counties, states that have to do with censorship and targeting specific groups of people that are negatively going to impact Gen Z and Gen Alpha and everything going forward. Where, at least where I'm at, is taking a huge step back. And so I think that if you can get involved in your local community, even if you don't have kids, and really try to fight against censorship, that's the biggest thing I could ask for. Oh, amen. Truly. Thank you both so much for being on this podcast. A huge thank you to our podcast producer, Christina Lopez, our executive producer, Jordan Moncada, our sound engineer, Marcus Hom, and our associate producer, Jaron Padre. I also want to give a huge thank you to our incredible partners over at Pattern Brands, Paquetto, Gear, and Yield. They have amazing glassware and candles and tiny spoons. They help us make a stunning tequila cocktail with our other partners at Tenteo Tequila. We will link to all of it in the show notes. Everything is in the show notes that you have heard from this episode. And if you have any more questions, go to the Patreon chat lounge and I will see you there.